Armando Zumaya has been a significant force in major fundraising efforts since the 1980s. From door knocking to billion dollar plus campaigns, and more recently, leading development efforts for top arts and social service institutions, Armando has become synonymous with fearless, data-driven fundraising. He is also a leading advocate for Latinx philanthropy and fundraising, putting this topic front and center through his newly formed organization, Somos El Poder. We spoke with him about the origins of this work, its importance, and the change he envisions is possible through this advocacy. So you're from LA. Which part of LA? Where were you born? I'm from uh, what is colloquially referred to as La Los, which is East LA, which is Boyle Heights. So I'm a proud Roosevelt High School graduate, the largest high school in the United States of America. Is that still true? Yes, it is. 5,800 students. Wow. Was it that big when you were there? The bigger. It was, uh, you were more likely to get sh- shot or stabbed than go to your college. It's the highest Marine Corps recruitment in so. so how did you avoid going into the Marine Corps <laughs> from Roosevelt High School? Which, which is actually something. My dad was in the Army. My brother was in the Army. We were expected to go in the Army. And I was like, no, nah, I don't want to. weird aversion to killing people. Uh, so, you know, it's, I'm a weirdo because I know a lot about military history. But, you know, I'm also a big peacemaker. Yes. Now, I, I know it was a little time between high school and later that you started working in the peace movement. But before we go there, what was it like going to a high school with 5,800 kids? I mean, how many of them did you really know from the neighborhood where you grew up? From I mean, that's a lot of people. Did you feel lost yeah, there? You know, or No. All Mexicans, overwhelmingly, I would say 95%. And uh, I knew my class, still do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's about it. Yeah, you didn't know the other classes. And, uh, you know, you knew the people in your direct neighborhood. Um, so think about a three-block radius. And I lived across the street from the high school. Um, and so actually there's a video on the website, for Somos Al Poder, where I talk about what motivated me. Well, I talk about the high school and the Chicano riots in 1973. So... You want to go there or not? Uh, well, let's let's hold on to that because I do want to go there. But um, you just said you were across the street from the high school. How did that happen? I mean, did your parents move there thinking, "Let's go, let's let our our kid go to the high school across the street"? My dad bought the house before he was even married, before he knew we were going to come along. Saw this house. It's a very funny. It's gone, which is very 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 sad. A Japanese um, doctor uh, built it. It was Victorian, but you could see the Japanese influence in the roof, and the structure. So it was like a Japanese Victorian, three stories, um, just beautiful, big old house. And my dad saw the guy moving out one day. He said, "You want to sell it?" The guy said, "Sure." Back in those days, it was like it was thousands of dollars, like three, four thousand bucks. Wow. It was the late late fifties. Yeah, yeah. And so your dad was there. A single at first. Where was he from originally? Teresa LA too. Born and raised. Uh, in what's what's now called a Liso village. Back then it was called the Russian flag. And uh, yeah, my dad was a, 
what would be called a tough boy who's like a gang member until he realized it was not a good thing to do and became a better guy. He was the first guy to go to college in my whole neighborhood. Um, and he was criticized. We were criticized. Really? Like, yeah. what kind of man, you know, doesn't work? What is that, work? It's not work. You went to college for what? Who do you think you are? And so, yeah, that's when my brother and I learned to like, fight. Between my mom and my, my mom was the first woman to go to work outside the home uh, to become a nurse. And so, you know, you know, this is, uh, this is amazing. So that, that's the, sort of the story of where the family kind of house went. We lived in there for 25 years. You know? Wow. Um, and your mom, is she from L.A. as well? Yeah, born and raised. Yeah. And uh, she's uh, raised uh, in the same neighborhood. And uh, so they were, my mom was born there um, in the same hospital. What sort of hospital she was born? just got me going. She was probably born in County General. And my dad, you know, she was probably born in her house. My dad was born in his house. Uh, my dad, dad was born in 28. My dad just passed away like six months ago. He's 92. Is a hell of a guy and taught me a, a lot about what it means to be a man and to be kind and all sorts of things and taught me racial pride too. Uh, so he's a yeah he's up there in heaven cutting a rug with my mom, no doubt. And that's, that's not even a discussion. That's for sure. You know, my, my dad loved to dance and he was crazy about my mom. Man. Fifty-eight years married. Amazing. Um, so you were there at Roosevelt. Um, and then I know you went to the university uh, in California, and and then uh, to UC um, Riverside, brother. Come Riverside. on, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I know you did undergraduate and graduate work there. Um, when did your whole work with the peace movement start? Was that when you were a student, or was that earlier? Well, uh, the peace movement started when I okay. So when I left, when I was in college, I got active in Cispus. Uh, the committee and solidarity with people all so well. So I became sort of more of a left finger there. Hmm. Um, I mean, the the story I was going to tell you about in front of my house as an eight-year-old was the, where that came from. When you grow up and, you know, in that place, you see things that changes you. Makes you, you see inequity, you live it. Right. So it's not a book, it's not a movie. Um, you know, I saw people dragged off the streets by the INS. I'll never forget a there's a girl, my, my brother and I were both 12 years old, had a crush on me. She was so cute. And we talked to her, and my brother was all like trying to flirt and everything. You know how shitty you are flirting when you're 12. And uh, we turned around, and two big white guys dragged her away, threw her in a car. Never saw her again. And that's okay. And the milk she was getting her mom was on the floor there, looking at her. That's a feeling you know, a lot of people in America don't have. You know, it's a, a trippy feeling. And so we learned that also, too, there's violence and gunfire and stuff there, too. So it makes you a different person. But we, we got off on a tangent. Uh, oh, the peace movement happened after I left college. I was in retail for a year because I was in retail during college experience. I'll pay for college. For the department store, which I loved. And uh, eventually I got sick of it, being very soulless, uh, for me at least, excuse me. Um, and uh, I saw an ad in the newspaper that said, a job you can believe in, St. Freeze. Uh, back in the head, ads in the newspaper. 
And it was, I showed up to an interview with a bunch of peace activists in suit and tie. They thought it was a cop. So they're all like, oh, what the heck's going on here? <laughs> Not that joint. <laughs> Pretty funny. And I was like, no, I'm here to interview. And like, they practically said, you're hired before we done with the interview. Uh, and it was, yeah, it was a door-to-door peace activist, five years. Uh, that changed everything about it. I learned to fundraise in a weird way, like a hustler, you know? Talk fast, read to people. It's like it's like qualification training, but like <laughs> in the streets. So it, it was very good uh, training for me as a fundraiser. And then um, I had this big experience, which was I had a daughter. Uh, I was 24 and uh, 25. And I had a beautiful baby who's still the joy of my life. And I was making $1,000 a year. So I was like, I have to get a real job. And I, believe me, it was very hard for me to leave the peace people. It was, uh, even with that. And um, I applied 27 times. Uh, I moved the office. I moved, my ex-wife was from upstate uh, New York. And we moved to Ithaca, New York. And this, you know, a couple of jobs at The big job is to work for now. Um, and so I got a job at Cornell. I was really lucky. It was almost, it was done through sheer force of will to get that job. That's another story, too. And I got that job uh, there, and that was like literally going from the third world to the USS Enterprise fundraising. Yeah. You know, I, I wanted to ask you about how you made that transition, and you, you gave kind of a short version of your same freeze days. I also don't know that a lot of people know what same freeze is now. Can you describe that and why it was important to you? Now it's called peace action, but we were working to stop underground nuclear weapons testing is a way to stop the development of nuclear weapons. I can still do my old rap too, man. It says, hi, this is Armando. I'm working for the oldest and largest peace testing in the United States of America. It's called St. Freeze. We're working to stop underground nuclear weapons testing in the world outside of the Yeah, it's like burned in your brain. There's no way to get that out. And so, yeah, you know, and you do that with a clipboard, donkey stance, whip it out, you know, and... uh no, that was a uh, very uh, beautiful work we did. We did uh, organizing work in Santa Barbara County. I ran the Santa Barbara office. And we threw out a 14-term uh, Republican out of office <laughs> through our organizing in very conservative districts. And it was the first time in my life I saw, you know what, I can do this. I can lead people. Um, and it felt good, you know, uh, to, you know, move the needle to do something to be effective. Um, because, yeah, where I was from, you know, everyone told you you would fail, <clears throat> except your parents, of course. Well, now I know that you weren't always knocking on friendly doors either. You've talked to me about oh, this. Easily. Yeah, I mean, the few doors I had uh, dogs rush me. I got I had people with guns, uh, naked people, uh, which is the worst. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, please, <laughs> thanks. Uh, people doing things you don't want to see, uh, but the scariest ones were uh, people who you know, wanted to kill you, wanted to hurt you. Um, and so we, we we worked in tandem across the street from each other for security. Sometimes we had like little walkie-talkies and things, but there were a few times I had uh, yeah I had thirty eights in my head, forty fives. You mean that people who wanted to you know you damn communists and son of a bleep 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 bleep. You know, you're the, you know, oh man, you know, Trumpers aren't, aren't new now. There were, you know, right wingers back then who were 
But you, I was literally, Fidel Castro was playing and giving me a paycheck. Uh, they were just sure of it. And so you, you got out of those situations to this common sense of guts, you know, just looking them in the eye. And so, yeah, it happened about eight or nine times. The worst one ever was, <laughs> was in Hermosa Beach, California on PCH. I uh, was knocking on doors. And you know, you know what a, those big hedges with a door cut them? Yeah. They're like yeah. Eight, eight tall. So I'd been to a house before that was all glass. This is very wealthy neighborhood. And um, I didn't know there was, light was all dark, knocked on the door, and I wrote it down, you know, come back. I didn't know there was uh, an older lady inside who saw me and assumed I was a thief because of the way I looked. And she called the Hermosa Beach police and said, there's a man with a gun trying to get my house. Uh-oh. <laughs> right. So I go to the next door over, knock on the door, and I come through the edge, and I look to the left, and there's two shotgun barrels right there. And these guys are trembling. And I'm like, whew. So I said, this is exactly what I said. I said, gentlemen, I am not armed. I am a peace activist. He said, on the count of three, I'm going to turn my back on you. And then I did that, one, two, three. And I said, on the count of three, I'm going to put my hands on my head so you can see my hands. Like, <laughs> I said, on the count of three, I'm going to go down on one knee and down on the other. And gentlemen, it would be nice if you put safeties on those guys. As you can see, I have a permit and unarmed. Talk to them as calmly as possible because one jitter and that you're dead. So that was her most of the, the cop goes, this is really reassuring. <laughs> I was like, you bastards. Did you stop pointing that freaking shotgun at me? You know? And later on, cops don't do this now. Later on, he went, oh, I'm sorry, man. He goes, we got bad information. I said, yeah. Why don't you go talk to her and tell her that she almost got a missing person killed? Because if I had just went, yeah, or yeah, what the hell? I was shot. Wow. So, <clears throat> and that was one time. There were other times, too. <clears throat> when you, you know, cops were trying to, actually, there's cops in warrants trying to get to South Pasadena. We'll never talk about that. <laughs> so, again, you went from that, which is really rugged work. You're knocking on doors. You don't know who they are. So take the politics out of it. It's still pretty tough for anybody who's afraid to talk to strangers and yeah. you had to do that. You, you cut your teeth in fundraising, but also just this kind of human interaction doing that. And then you yeah. went to Cornell. What, so what a difference. Uh, well, I mean, maybe, maybe not. What was the, what was it like to transition? Um, it was funny because I joined the Cornell fund, which I'm still very proud of. I love the Cornell. I love Cornell. still do. I have great affection for the place for a bunch of reasons. But Sarah Pearson was my boss then. She's, I think now she's, she was VP at Bowdoin, Chicago. She thinks she's still in Chicago. But um, they, they had some really tough reunion classes, class of 70, that took over. They were literally took over with guns of the student, of black student union, over to union. And um, the jocks, the frat boys tried to get it. I mean, they were literally at war with each other, class of 70. Wow. And the reunion campaign model was like the Richie Cunningham model of everyone knows the whole mater versus sweater and they're all white. You know, it's, it's like the model did not work for that class. Yeah. And their, and their prior fundraising numbers were business, right? So she was looking at this and she says, I need somebody who's out of the box, different, who's a hustler, 
And when I interviewed, she was like, that's the guy. <laughs> I don't need the same old guy who went to Cornell. I need, I need somebody who's like a, kind of a rogue. And that's what I was. At Cornell, I've gotten a lot of trouble, man. Because I was like, you know what? I'll just do it the way I want to do it. The heck with fools, protocols, databases. I'll make it up as I go along. It was not once I was called into the vice president's office and the boss there. Because yeah, I, I was the first guy to say, annual fund, we get prospect research too. No, no, only major gift. I'm like, I'm going to stare talk to this prospect research. And I used to take them cookies and things. People thought I was having an affair with a couple of them because I was always up there. Please, prospect research, give me something. They well, loved me. And, and prospect research was pretty different back then too. Yeah, I, I was. Um, there was an old paper marked in London screening, and I was doing a reunion campaign class. And Major Gifts was like, "This is terrible. We don't need this." I was like, "You guys gonna throw this away? But well, you can have it." But okay, so I just grabbed it and was like, "Okay, this is my goal." But immediately understood. I don't know how. <clears throat> immediately understood what it was, and started to just mind the heck out of it. And I'm just making big gifts bringing them down right and left. So Major Gibbs noticed. And they said, I stole the screening from you. It wasn't my property. My boss went to the mat and was like, nope, he's doing his job. And they were like, oh, we need that guy. <laughs> so this is, a, this is all ancient history. Some of these people are no longer with us. But yeah, there was this young punk who shook everything and did different things, some of which were very successful and still being used. Um, but I brought in a different dynamic, and Sarah was right. I mean, we rocked that class. We made our goal. It was hard. Uh, but, yeah, I was – so I kind of took on the tough classes from there on in until I became a leadership gifts officer. And that was a different tough work, yeah. So I, I love the university. It was, um, I, to this day, I snobbishly compare it to other places. Well, it was also the place where really everything we think of when we think about uh, moves management or the major good programs of great campaigns were really, much of that was developed right there at Cornell when you were there. Yeah, it was the first billion dollar campaign. <clears throat> and uh, I knew Dave Dunlop pretty well uh, because my father-in-law at the time was close friends with me. Um, <laughs> Dave Dunlop and I had kind of a show uh, showdown one time. This is a it's embarrassing to talk about it now. But we had this, this showdown over paid student phone. So you believe in amateur or volunteer student phone, mm -hmm. right, with all these frats and stuff. And I said, no, you're not paying these people. Come on. They're right. students. They need money. And you'll get a better quality of calling relationship with the paid student phone. And it was like, and we had back and forth argument. And I, like I said, I'm like a kid, and I'm telling Gabe Dunlop he's wrong. <laughs> right. And he's at that time he was principal of this, okay? I don't know who thought of it. Maybe he did. I wouldn't have been that bold. But they said, okay, let's get, you know, 12 of your phoners in the room, 12 of my phoners in the same room, and let's see who raises more money in one night. And I won. So it was, and he was a gentleman about it. He goes, oh, I've seen the light. Yeah, that was one of those things like, oh, what am I getting myself into? So, yeah, talk about ancient. I haven't thought about that in Egypt. But, yeah, that was, that was me at Cornell. Now, you, and that was a launch for you into a whole bunch of different kinds of major principal gift kind of fundraising throughout a career. And you've gone from yeah. East Coast to West Coast 
different kinds of organizations. What's what's the connective tissue in all that? What keeps you moving through that? Um, I mean, I love, I do love prospecting. I do love the thrill of saving the day of pulling out the impossible gift. You know, working for a big institution where big gifts come in all the time, to me, that's kind of like, yeah, cool. Uh, I mean, I, the institutions I've worked for, by and large, are ones I deeply believe in. Um, some of them more recently were pretty flawed places, uh, which I didn't know when I started. Um, but no, I, I mean, for me, it's a, a love of, I love fundraising. I love people uh, having the opportunity to do good with money. I love the, the empowerment of people, uh, especially when you're talking about mass funding and in, new people doing major giving. It's a lot of fun. Um, and you're doing good for the planet. You know, it's how can you do wrong? Only in the last, I don't know, few years have I really become, I mean, I started out social justice and coming back to my roots um, because I had that weird, very, I don't know anyone else who's had this, which is, you know, I started out in, we call it keep the lights on fundraising, knocking on doors, peace movement, social justice. And then I went to work for Cornell. And then when I left, you know, the university space, it was like, how do you get that model and make it small and make it work for, um, you know, little, how do you make little institutions raise more money, a lot more? How do you, what lessons can these big institutions learn, teach, you know, small institutions and vice versa? I was a small institution fundraising at Cornell. I was a canvasser at Cornell. That's what I earlier was. I wasn't, you know, these great, you know, moves managing people that waited for three years to move on somebody. I, I couldn't. I was too big. I haven't pick out a phone, you know. And I was in the right spot, thanks, thanks to Sarah and Kathy Cole, my former boss, who's one of the best bosses I ever had, after you, Dick. Um, <laughs> and uh, we, uh, you know, it's, the, co- the corollary is I love doing good. I love the power of funding and prospect research. It's beautiful just beautiful when you see it work when you see it do beautiful things when you see people's lives change you know i I had experiences there where i mean scholarships happen and these kids come up to me and like they thank the donor and then they look me in the eyes did you do this i'm like well the donor did but you did it and i'm like well yeah i'm the first person in my whole family god bless you you know and you're like whoa okay you know who gets to do that in their job you know, I mean, that's, uh, I had an uh, experience when I was in uh, public school reform. I worked for five years for the learning partners. And it was uh, very transformative for me. We were in the Central Valley in this super poor school district. Literally, the state was about to take it over. Um, and it was the poorest place you ever saw. Literally, kids running around without shoes. The extended valleys. I mean, we're talking poverty, the number one uh, cyclical poverty numbers in the country, past West Virginia, Mississippi, California Central Valley. So we're out there and um, we're talking to the school district and my job was to fill the Delta. So we would go to the school district and they would say, okay, well, we have a Delta of 100,000. We got our money, your money, this is what we need to do this project to improve the school. So my boss would look at me and I'd done my research, but yeah, we can do that. So we were in this school district and um, Sanger Unified, 
And she said, 50,000. I'm like, no way am I raising 50,000 here. No, no way. Okay. Literally, I couldn't raise 5,000. This is ridiculous. So we turned the contract down. And I walked out, you know, feeling a little bad, to the playground. And this little girl, like three feet tall, got my finger. And she looked at me and she said, in Spanish, are you here to help us? And I was just like, oh, oh man. It was just like she hit me with a pipe. And I got down on one knee and I looked at her and I don't worry. Yes, of course. Sweet. And I went back and told my boss, accept the contract. She was like, you just told me. <laughs> and I said, accept the contract. She goes, okay, you better come up with that. And you have three months. So I was like, oh, what have I done? So I went out and I did all my prospect research, all my trade craft, all the stuff I knew how to do, mm-hmm. and tried to make it happen. And, um, you know, first I went to the banks and uh, I guilt tripped each one and got 5,000, 5,000. And then I went to uh, the biggest landholder in town and I got like another 5,000. And uh, Carol, oh, Carol Harris, yeah, she was awesome. And then I went to the, um, the Chinese market owner there, Gong, Gong's Market, I remember the name. And the little 14 year old girl translated to the the dad who owned the two big, the big markets, like a market. There's no supermarket. And he said, yeah, I'll put money in. And then finally, my prospect, old prospect research friend looked up his name for me. Uh, and it was this guy who'd gone to Sangre Unified. He'd been my Berkeley campaign chair in East Coast. A great guy named Tom Schneider. Who, and she says, you know where he went to school? Sangre Unified. <laughs> in the 30s. German family, farmers, you know? So I went went to uh, the archives of Sanger Unified and I found a class picture. And you know the little rascals of the world, Monteroy, and the English church? There he was on the steps. So I got got to the point with him, he goes, what do you want? What's this about? You want money, right? So I said, I put the picture down. I said, your school needs your help. He started, he's like crying. He's like, bastard. <laughs> he's like, this is, whoa, that's what you call cultivation. Like, damn, you know, here's your school. They need your help. He goes, what do you need? So he wrote me a $25,000 check. All this was three-year pledges. So everyone gave the same amount for three years. And because of that campaign, uh, they turned that school district around. It became a, a state, uh, like, number one school district. It still is. And people would move from Fresno and other towns to get into that school district. So it's a state-distinguished school district. Because that program worked so well, those people were so hungry for help and change. And it's a beautiful, you know, because that little girl, uh, she like, one could say she saved her town, you know, to some degree. And uh, it was just those moments of a mix of just, you know, recklessness, one of my first bosses, who are uh, long since gone, who is a civil rights icon, Reverend William Sloan Coffin, I call him Bill, Bill Coffin, he uh, has this great quote. He says, I love the recklessness of faith. First you jump and then you grow wings. And that's real good fundraising. That's what it's like. So, yeah, who gets to do that? Come on. That's rock and roll. Now, you, know? you, you said 
before you gave these examples of a little girl and then I guess a young man getting the scholarship. This is the impact on individuals. But you just talked about a donor and slapping down the photograph. And one perspective on that is that made it possible for that gift to happen. What did it mean to the donor? Because you have interacted with a lot of donors where maybe nobody did that before. It must have been meaningful to him and to many of these other people for somebody to come in there and jog their memory and tell them something is important. Yeah, you know, it meant a tremendous amount to him. He uh, he lost touch with that world. He was in New York, living in Greenwich. And, um, you know, there was a world of California almond farmers who grew up pretty poor. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's a tough depression days. And so to, to write a check and save that school district, come on. Wouldn't you like to do that? To, you know, whatever place that helped you back then, you know? And he loved that school. He remembered the teacher's faces, remember their name. And the first thing he said, can I have this? He goes, yeah, it's a copy for you. I was like, wow, it's like a piece of time. That's exactly what I needed. And that was my prospect research, too. I listened to her, uh, Colleen. And Colleen told me, you know, she said, first she said, he went to school in the Central Valley. Where in the Central Valley? And then she dug and dug and dug and found it. And then that was her idea. She says, you need to find something that ties it to that place. I'm like, like what? That was like 50 years ago. That was like a school picture. Yeah. So that's how we found it, yeah. And that's the way a lot of researchers or people in prospect development think. They make those connections that then make it possible for helping the the place and the donor. Um, And and now there's another element in all this. It's very controversial right now which is that some people say, well, essentially, there is so much inequity. The kind of inequity you described, even where you grew up, and what you experienced working with St. Freeze and right there in that school district, we all recognize that. But some people's approach to that with fundraising is, you know what, we ought to just, um, we shouldn't be focusing on major and principal gifts or wealthy individuals. Now, I understand the feeling behind that, but what are your thoughts on that? Because you've been very dedicated to social Mm -hmm. justice throughout your fundraising career. And today, what what, what are your thoughts on that? How to make those two things marry? Major gifts is automatically a moral consequence. And right now, there's a lot of people out there like, you know, I I really take tasks with Edgar Villanueva and his whole approach of, hey, wealth is terrible, and wealth has been, in, um, if there's too many wealthy people growing too wealthy fast. Absolutely true. 100% agree. 101%. But the solution isn't, okay, let's ask him to stop. If there's no solution, right? It's like, it's just terrible. But what's the solution? For me, the solution is for, uh, impo- you know, people of color, uh, specifically Latino community, to find its own power. And um, absolutely, that is mass, small, Bernie Sanders-style giving. Absolutely. But major giving isn't inherently evil and bad. There are good people who are, well, you know, nice people who done who haven't done anything terrible. Um, yes, there are some people you should not take them. No problem. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because, as you know, Jay, 
the number one determiner in my mind between small, helpless nonprofit and big, strong nonprofit is major giving. Okay. Individual major giving program is the most powerful tool. And why should only the right, why should only wealthy uh, nonprofits have it? The inequity isn't in wealth. The inequity is in the nonprofit world because uh, 70% of nonprofits never have a major giving program. 90% have budgets under $5 million. So the universities are, and hospitals are making all the money while these other small nonprofits stay small, stay helpless, can't scale, can't grow, can't have an effect because they hate fundraising. And oh, major gifts get from gross rich people. It's a huge, huge catastrophic error. You know, and it's like a fish that hates swimming. Like, you're a nonprofit leader, you better love fundraising. If you don't like fundraising, go do something else. Because there's plenty of nonprofit leaders that despise fundraising. And this, you know, yeah, is all this wealth being given out? Could they give out a heck of a lot more? Of course they could. Is Mackenzie Scott wonderful? Of course she is. But that's not the norm. Philanthropy comes from fundraising. There's a whole thing out now where, you know, philanthropy just kind of magically happens. Like, no, philanthropy comes from some guy like me working in an office, making it happen. And that's, it's amazing. I have a huge issue with that, the foundation role, and where they're trying to grow individual giving um, and try to, and everyday donors, that's another term. Like, I don't know, why don't you try something that's worked for 150 years called fundraising? Support that. Crazy, I know. Um, a little sarcasm there, sorry about that. I get hot on that subject. So for me, the inequity is really about uh, fundraising. It's really about the power of empowering donors. And there's a whole bunch of well-meaning liberal folks who are like, those poor Latinos, they can't, you know, raise any money. Of course we can raise money. Of course we can raise, you know, billions. I'm the first crazy man to calculate how much Latinos potentially can give every year. This is a perfect transition. So I, I know we're yeah. going to talk about this. So just share some of the data for a second. What, what's the potential? What are we actually seeing? Because all of it's undercounted, right? I mean, am I correct about that? All of it's undercounted. The number one problem is that Latinos are not engaged by one. Okay. I, you know, which which they, is different. That's not to say that they're not involved in philanthropy. They're not engaged Buy. They're not Correct. engaged in fundraising. People aren't asking them for money. Right. Latinos do give, uh, 63% of us give, overwhelmingly to the church, that's the big one, and to kids' organizations. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, there's 59 million Latinx. Uh, we have a $2.6 trillion annual GDP okay, in the U.S. If we were a country, we'd have a GDP entirely in France. Okay. So um, the number one starter of a new business right now is a Latino, okay? And so the giving for annually, the number I've, and it's a crude number, I, I'm not a scientist, it's $24.7 billion a year for Latinos to give in the US, right? And that's a conservative number, believe it or not. But even if I was out of my skull and it was 10 billion, uh, the number of the number of foundations give Latinos focused on profits about 1.8% of their kids, about 500 dollars Okay, so that's what being ignored looks like by the nonprofit, by foundations and philanthropy. I say foundations and philanthropy because too many foundations call themselves philanthropy, and they're not philanthropy, they're part of philanthropy. 
And people don't like that, but that's the case. Real philanthropy is the Guatemalan mom down the street who's giving her her um, women's shelter 25 bucks a month. That's a lot of money for her. She's philanthropy, okay? And that's 80% of philanthropy is her. Okay, she's the real power of philanthropy. She's the real power of change, not the Ford Foundation, okay? She is. And we need to cultivate her and make more people like her give more, as much as they can, you know? She's the real power. She's billions and billions and billions of change, okay? And so all the focus on diversity, all the focus on inequity is about 18% of land. This is the thing I have with community-centered fundraising. This is the thing I have. With the whole, you know, philanthropy so white. No, no, no. You're talking about foundations, brothers. Come on. The whole thing is, you know, all these other different parts of the pie. But they don't know those parts because they're not fundraisers. Okay? Fundraisers are in the background. They're silent. Nobody asks us about philanthropy, even though we make philanthropy. You know, and it's there's a huge discussion about philanthropy without any fundraisers in the room. It's amazing. You know. Well, so that's is that. How much of the origin story is that uh, for your organization? Um, t- t- tell, tell us about how it was founded, what, what the purpose, Somos El Poder, excuse me. Well, it was, uh, you were there, brother, uh, to some degree. Um, 2018, I almost died. I had to be on beret, uh, and I was paralyzed. And uh, one night, my uh, chest muscles, my respiratory stopped working, so I stopped breathing. And they brought me back, saved me, university. Um, and I was, you know, after I wrote a few goodbye letters to my family <laughs> and to a, a woman uh, I loved at the time, uh, I said, you know, to myself, if you knew you could live, because they didn't know what it was. They, they told me some crazy things that were terrifying. Um, and everyone listening, Jay was one of the people who rallied to save me, really helped me and raised money for me. When I couldn't pay rent, I didn't have a job that day. I didn't have help preaching. Okay, they wrote a big fat check. All right, done. So I was, that, you know, I, my hand is still work. This hand, not this one, is from dead. And I lay there flat, and I said, "Well, you know what I would do? What, what's the thing you, you insignificant human being, the one thing that is uniquely only you could do?" And I said, "Found a Latino fundraising institute." Because it's always been in little pieces in my head. And life is like things going on. You never like sit down and write it down. I said, well, I should have done it for a retreat. Die. <laughs> so it would have been a lot more fun. <laughs> you know, get a little like that. Go ahead and stop you. But uh, no, I'm laying there. And I started typing out my phone. And the original notes are on my phone are all misspelled. I only have a few fingers on it. Right. And I was doing the voice activated thing, trying to talk, making notes and designing it in my brain. And it got me through some bad times. It got me through some really bad times. And um, when uh, that woman I told you about broke up with me, I was shattered. Uh, the Institute, planning, making the Institute with like mental candy it was fun. It was so much fun. It was like the counter degree. And so it was born of pain. Yeah, I was born of pain. And um, as I, you know, time progressed, I realized you just got to make it happen, man. You're the only person who has this vision. And everyone I told it about, Latino fundraisers, went crazy. They were like, oh, my God, it's about time, you know. No one was like, oh, tell me about this. They were like, yes. <laughs> that was the response. Yes. 
But just to have a room, a virtual room full of Latino fundraisers, we're all like, man, can I touch you? Are you real? It's just this feeling of like, oh my gosh, we're together. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's unbelievably beautiful to see some of the things happening. So and, for, for people know, who haven't read about the organization, heard about it yet, what is the mission? Simple. It's uh, the first Latinx fundraising institute in the U.S. And I, don't get me wrong, I love AFP. Okay? I love AFP. Well, I love Candid. They've been very kind to me. But they're not, Latinos don't participate in either, um, overwhelmingly. Um, and a lot of what they're teaching is inaccessible because of cost, because they're teaching a level of, of sophistication nonprofits that Latinx focused nonprofits don't have, hmm. with a few exceptions. Um, and so I designed the institute to go down to small and medium nonprofits. It's like the grassroots fundraising institute, which is gone now, um, but with a cultural focus on Latinos. And also, when I was at Cornell, we had the Ivy MIT conference, and it was basically a best practices conference where you learn from what's actually working in the field. It was the best conference I ever went to. My God, I was my eyes were open. And that's what this is, best practices. So, you know, we had a, a young woman from L.A., uh, Chicana, who was teaching plant giving because she was doing plant giving with Latinos. How is she doing this? So we had a packed room of people who were taking notes and, like, and spreading the best practices. That's all. And I told, you know, I said, all of you on this class, with the extra price of this class, is whoever in a year succeeds, you come back and teach the next class. The continuous improvement model very simple, not hard. Um, but, you know, the potential impact of this kind of work is massive, right? And so to unleash even a fraction, it's not even about um, the money to some degree. It's about having people say, you know, si se puede. It's about um, nosotros juntos levantamos, which means together we rise. Um, and it's about teaching a young Chicana in Arizona that, yeah, I can raise $100,000. I, I made that ask, I did it, I can do it again, right? And that makes you different. It's not about waiting for the foundation brand. It's about, I'm gonna go figure it out and do it myself, right? You, and the foundations, God bless them, they can be catalysts for this. That's a whole other discussion. Foundations, with a few exceptions, bless them, have not figured this out yet. I don't know um, if they ever will, but I'm, I'm a big voice on But are they responding to some of what you're doing? Are they seeing? Uh, that there's a change in the air and no, no, no yeah. this, this is the story, man. So uh, the MacArthur Foundation, John T. Captain T. MacArthur Foundation and the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, two, I'm going to say it, brilliant program officers, told them about this in 10 minutes. They were like, yeah, we got to do this. Mm -hmm. This is, this is, this is, this is different. So I was blown away by that. Um, but the majority of of program officers, this is what I heard. This is really great. Oh my gosh. But we can't fund it. Because our guidelines, there's nothing like this in the guidelines. We don't, we don't do infrastructure, that's leadership. Like, no. Resilience, that's leadership. You know, yeah. we only fund leadership resilience. So resilience and fundraising, there's no kind of correlation there. You're right, there's a correlation, but that's not how we do it. And then the worst ones are you know, we want to support individual giving from people of color. I'm like, awesome. And then they're like, well, that would 
fundraising? Like, yeah, that's how it's done. <laughs> like, oh, wow, we, you know, we're funding this new app and we're funding a convening. Like, no, why don't you fund teaching people to raise money for people of color? And there's a lot of implicit bias. Rivers and rivers of it where people think, oh, you know what? Those, those Latinos, can't, they can't do it. I always point them to St. Jude Children's Hospital, which raises tens of millions right. conservatively from Latinos every year. Do you ask any Latina? Um, you got, do you know Santa Julia St. Jude? Oh, yeah, my aunt gives My mom gives them. My sister gives them. Because they spend money, they invest. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one uh, radiothon. This is the only published number. And over a five-year, this is just a radiothon. They raised $111 million from Spanish-speaking people in this country. So does the Diabetes Association raise money off Latinos, number one killer of Latinos? No one's, no one's gotten the memo there. No? Um, but, you know, the largest organization, Latino organization, they don't invest in, in Latino countries, and they don't get it. It's, it's the same thing with most nonprofits. They don't understand fundraising. I, wa- I wanted to ask you about something that you, you wrote a couple of years ago. It was before... The, or I guess early on the pandemic, if not before, this article about why is green so white? And you wrote, if you want to write an article that lots of people will bypass, try writing one about the lack of diversity and inclusion in the nonprofit sector. It's the quickest way to drive people away. Now, I mean, embedded in that is also this, this kind of idea about whether something's of interest or not. Whether you're talking to a foundation, like you just said, whether you're writing an article in, in one of our uh, magazines or newspapers, whether you're showing yeah. up at a conference. I, I wanted to ask you, is there, are you seeing a change at all? Because there has been this big discussion since, you know, obviously the, the murder of George Floyd, but many other things that preceded that and followed that. Are you seeing any kind of change in the way people perceive the opportunity to drive capacity building by communities of color? No. No, for me, it's, it's, so there's the conundrum is, um, there's more investment in Latino organizations, but so little, it's, it's really hard to see. Um, there's that, but it's, it, it, fundraising is competitive. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a sport. It's not like, you know, the organizations work it, right? They're supposed to. And still Latino organizations are too weak to compete. Mm-hmm. And they don't like to hear this. They like to say it's all racism and implicit bias. Uh, most of it is. Most of it is. Right? And But it's still, if you want to raise big bucks from a foundation, then you got to get an appointment. you got to know what to say. you got to do research. You, I mean, you have to have a staff person to develop an officer. The majority of Latino nonprofits don't have development officers. They don't have veteran grant writers. They have an executive director doing it at 9 o'clock at night. Compared to some other organization, you know, well-paid staff, guess who's going to win, right? So, for me, the inequity is still there. Like Phoenix is still under 3% of board members in the state of California, which is shocking. They're still um, forgotten as major donors. We're not even there, you know. Um, and staff, you know, <clears throat> forget the staff thing. It's, we're not even there with staff. Um, and so, no, I mean, I can't speak to the African-American experience and what they've gone through, but for Latinos, we're, we're the easy one to ignore. We're 20% of the freaking population that we're ignoring. Um, and it's, 
the lack of a voice, the lack of people saying hard things. Like I say hard things, people don't want to hear and they don't want to hear it. But you know, the, the article uh, you mentioned, people won't read it, but the first through the magic of LinkedIn, you can see who li likes the pieces, right? And if there's a thousand people reading that piece and there were 1600 of the light, there are two white people, like 48 people, there's two white people out of 48 people. It's like, who's reading this piece? Not white nonprofit leader. They're going to go, oh, don't do this. I'll now, feel bad. So with the organization, though, uh, obviously you have an aspiration, um, mm -hmm. a vision to make some of that change happen. Um, and you've seen a lot of energy as people come to the organization to help, not just those couple of, of very uh, uh, thoughtful and, and smart or, uh, foundations, but all these other people, people in the field who really see the value. What do you imagine this looking like in a year or two years or five years? What's the vision you had when you were in bed trying to figure this out and typing it with one hand? What does it look like? The first thing I thought of was the conference because that's where my brain went. <clears throat> and then, you know, I expanded. Um, I changed it to, it, it has to be a community. Hmm. It has to be someplace you go where you feel safe and you can be helped. So we are starting a uh, certificate program, 12 classes, been very, very practical left Phoenix fundraising. And then you know, for college students, mid-career professionals who want to enter the profession, uh, we get them an internship or a job with members of the Institute. So it's, it's, it's just like wrap around, like we're going to create this beautiful, you know, glass house, greenhouse of, of growing ideas, supporting each other. But the most beautiful thing I've saw since I've been here was, since I started the Institute, was uh, a, a Chicana in Ventura, California, get on our listserv, like uh, Prospect Bell. That's where I got that idea. Uh, was And then she asked a question about fundraising, and a Dominicana in New York wrote it back. So this is what you do. And that doesn't happen. There is no association of Latino nonprofits. It doesn't exist. We don't know about each other. We don't help each other. We don't know. We, there's no collaboration or anything like that, really. I mean, there's one organization that's gotten some people together, but the conferences are always about leadership. Let's give out awards. I'm like, the heck with that? Let's raise money, okay? Let's raise hundreds of millions of dollars. So a lot of problems go away when you have hundreds of millions of dollars, you know? And so for me, it's like, it's the thing people don't know about, that they don't want to talk about, or they don't know not to, they don't know to talk about. But we all know our nonprofits are tiny. We all know they're weak. And we all know there are people working hard right now to take away our rights, you know, and take away our voting and make sure our kid doesn't get an education. And, you know, you can drive, drive down certain streets in D.C. and there's people who are working hard to really make sure Latinos don't have a voice. And so we got to, you know, punch back at least equal and come back with our own money and our own strength, our own organizations. We have great leaders right now, especially young Latinas leading the way, and they need to be armed with plenty of money to get the job done. It's that simple. And I, I wrote an op-ed just recently that says Latinas can save America, and we can. You know, we're, we're, we're the, the tipping point between fascism in this country, you know, between uh, something that does not look like America. We get out and vote, we educate, we register, we support real people doing the, you know, real things. And great media, we can do it. You know, there's a lot of us, 59 million people, something out. 
you know, I can't help but think that um, the Armando today, uh, I wonder what Armando, you know, back at, at high school would have thought about what you're doing today, the kind of vision, but also about your dad. I know your dad was so important to you. You lost him only recently, but he was there with you when you started some of this, this, uh, this new path. What, what was that conversation like? What do you think you would think about where you're going now with this? What would my dad think? My dad's proud. I know exactly what he's thinking. He's, he's loving it. He was part of it. Uh, he was the, uh, I mean, yeah, we all do things to make our dad proud, right? One thing for it. He gave me some original ideas I had not thought about. I mean, my dad's not a fundraiser, you know? But I know him, man. And his motto is keep punching. And so that's the way I was raised. You don't quit, you know? You, and you run to the sound of battle. Yeah, you're not, you're not, you don't cower. And so the battle for me now is the fate of this country, the fate of my people, all my people. And we got to do something. And, and holding awards banquets, pat each other on the back, more leadership. Leadership's great. Don't get me wrong. But when all the funding to help Latino organizations get stronger and better is in one area, but not the, the number one most essential area, which is fundraising. You know, you can have the best leader with the best model, no money, you ain't got anything. Okay, that's all it is. Thank you, Armando. Really, really great to, yeah. to have a chance to talk about some of this with you. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. It's 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 powerful, and um, it's just getting going. There, are, people's heads are beginning to turn because of God bless the MacArthur and Silicon Valley Foundations. And you know the chronicle philanthropy, and I just want to change it. I mean, the thing I cannot get for all the tea in China is the major foundations that really let's talk about. You know, teaching them to fish, maybe giving them a fishing boat, and stop giving fish. Okay, get help that organization really learn to diversify fundraising, grow people of color you know, mass fundraising, teach organizations how to become giants. Especially the ones with great models, who have love in the community, who are doing good things. And people, even poor people know about, oh yeah, I know them, they help my, my sister. Most people are gonna give, and give deeply. But nobody, nobody, the grassroots fundraising organization's gone. Nobody's working on, on this. And um, it's tragic, you know? And so foundations have to stop and think, what is organizational effectiveness, infrastructure, why don't we have fundraising there? And, and what does that look like? You know, why aren't we really about resilience? Resilience is not just leadership and sometimes marketing, it's about raising budget, you know? And so I've, I've never been able to have a foundation together to have that conversation. I sit down in front of all of them and say, and when I do get them on the phone and program offices, they don't have answers, you know? They can't say, Look, it's just on our guidelines. That's not the way we think. Um, I had one program officer from one of the biggest foundations in the country say to me, this is a huge hole in our strategy. That's what she said. She had the guts to say that. Bless her. Because it is. And, you know, it, I'm sure giving up programming is more fun than giving up fundraising. <clears throat> but a lot of the, so the problem is the program officers, foundation folks often don't know a lot about fundraising, very little about major giving. And the idea of Brown people giving a lot of money, totally alien. And then there's the 
<clears throat> the nonprofits themselves, when they, if a foundation says, hey, we want you to you know, spend this on fundraising, they're like, oh, no, I don't like fundraising. Because they don't like fundraising as it is. So it's like, how do you teach somebody to do the thing that's going to save their life? You know, so we just started a cohort with the Silicon Valley Community Foundation where they uh, picked out 10, well, they didn't pick them out. This is the story of 10 nonprofits to have prospect research and a consultant worker. Here's the key difference. A freelancer, and we're going to work with these 10 Latinx nonprofits in Northern California. And there is 85 different uh, nonprofits on the list. And they put out, they call us and say, hey, if you want this to be part of this cohort, and in 10 minutes it was full. So people want to do it. Yeah, if you pick the right, leader, the right leaders who want to do fundraising, you can do amazing things. And then have an organization that can spread it, can elevate it, can fine tune it. So, you know, it, it, for me, it's like, you know, grassroots fundraising journal, APRA and AFP all together. So, yeah. Awesome. But Latino, good music and better food. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Especially your house. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you see those, I guess you do. Thank you, Armando. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at DonorSearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.